0: Our Father in heaven, I ask as we study the book of Revelation that you would be here as our instructor, and I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Has that been there long enough that I can erase it without doing damage? All right. Revelation chapter 11. Yes, sir. What? I think I did. Thank you for asking, but I think I did. Yeah, I did before, before we even prayed. Revelation chapter 11. One question we're addressing this morning is why 1260 years? Let me see if I can put the question into perspective for you. Any given one year in the history of the Middle Ages was a significant disaster. I don't know in your world history class how you've, what you've covered, but if I could take just the nation of France, for example, and begin, for example, just in the 12th century... Beginning in the 12th century, there were such regular destruction of Christians in southern France that one historian said that part of the nation became a desert. So that every year, Dominican friars would come into the land, seeking into hiding places, looking in bushes, looking in closets, trying to find the followers of the Albigensian heresy. That was done year after year for more than a century. Yes. The Albigensians. the Albigensians were people like you that believed in the Bible and didn't believe in Catholicism, and to give you more than that would mean I wouldn't finish this lecture. Okay. But if you ask me later, I'll help you with that. In France, following the That, and by the way, that persecution was ordered by a man who had the name of Innocent III, one of the most ironic names in all of history. He gave it to himself, which just reminds you of that passage in the Bible that says they justified themselves, and here was a man, Innocent III, who ordered these executions. During the 16th century in France... This is almost like a history lesson, but it's relevant to what you're studying right now. If you could compare, say, graphs, that this is the picture of how well the reform is going in Germany, how well it's going in England, how well it's going in Switzerland, how well it's going in the Netherlands. This represents how well it appeared to be going in France. Why was it going like this in France? Because whenever people were accepting the gospel in France, they were being executed. And that was happening repetitively. In fact, the most famous reformers in France ended up fleeing most of them to Switzerland, a few of them to Germany, and more than zero to England. So if you're looking at the success of the Reformation, for example, in the Great Converse, if you read the chapter that, um, about France, you'll find most of the people there leaving France before you finish the chapter. But there's another way you can look at this graph that's just as accurate. If we talk about the number of people that died in Germany that were ready to go to heaven... The number of people that died in England that were ready to go to Heaven. The number of people that died in Switzerland that were ready to go to Heaven. The number of people that died in the Netherlands that were ready to go to Heaven. And of course, all these graphs are guesses, right? But this is not just a random guess. The number of people that died in France that were ready to go to Heaven exceeds all so that there's quite a difference between the apparent success of God's work in the middle ages and the real success. Do you understand what I'm saying with this graph? That this is real success even if it doesn't show up very well in terms of the growth of the church. This is why the Bible says for example in Isaiah 9 speaking about Jesus the mighty counselor the or the mighty god the wonderful counselor It says of the increase of his government there shall be no end because his government is increasing whether or not it appears to be doing anything like that on the earth. I'm making a circuitous route to explaining why 1260 years. And maybe you've already covered this interesting statement of Jesus. You can find it in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, where he said, except these days, referring to these days, except these should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. And the persecution in those years was shortened. So I'm just going to go to my point and... Did you all cover that, Mr. Joseph? That no flesh be saved. I'm going to come to my point about why 1260 years. It has to do with an idea that I'm going to write up here, pure samples. Yes, sir. No, I'm talking about 1,260 years of papal uh, oppression. Yeah. Um, How can I illustrate this where you can see it? If you've taken chemistry, or even if you've just taken chemistry in elementary school and read about it or something, if you wanted to study, say, salt and wanted to study, say, sugar, what would happen if you took a mixture of salt and sugar and tried to study it? You know, it'd be very hard to learn about either salt or sugar from a mixture of salt and sugar. There's something about when you mix elements up that, it, unless you can unmix them, it's hard to differentiate what are the characteristics of the salt and what are the characteristics of the sugar. In other words, if you didn't know, ahead, anyway, you understand the illustration. I'll just go on. It is difficult for men and for angels to evaluate the effects of righteousness on a nation and the effects of sin on a nation. It's very complex because there are sinners and righteous people mixed up together all around this world. It was so hard for Willie Miller, for example. Maybe you've read this in the Great Controversy, the chapter of the American Reformer, that when he was just a little older than you, he became a deist. He stopped believing... (coughs) that God had personal interaction with people on earth. What led him that direction? One thing that led him that way was that the deists in his town were some of the most upright and noble citizens. They were men of culture and integrity, men who cared for their families and took good care. What William Miller couldn't distinguish is that these men had been taught these values when they were young, by men who were thoroughly Christian. And that's just an illustration of what's real. That is where Christianity, real Christianity, is mixed with anything else. It's like a leaven in the lump, and it can leaven the whole lump. So that here is Satan ruling this world, but this world has not really given a good picture very often of what it would be like under Satan's rule. Let me try to say that again. Satan is ruling this world. But the world does not represent a good picture of what the world is like under Satan's rule. Because here and there in the world, there are pieces of God's kingdom. What did you say? My kingdom is within you. And do we make a difference in the world? We make such a difference in the world that if there had been ten true Christians in Sodom, it would not have been destroyed by fire. I think it was even five. Yeah, go ahead, Mr. Um, It's used both. Paul compares it to sin, and Jesus compares it to Christianity. If you want a reference for that, that's in Mark 13. You know, just because you're the kind of person who will look it up, I'm going to give you a verse number. Why don't you all turn your Bibles for a minute to Mark 13, and we'll look at it together. Mark 13, and we're looking... Just give me a moment... I looked at this verse this morning, so I'm going to be able to find it. It's Luke 13. Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, and looking at verse 20. It says, And again he said, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Yeah, it's true both ways. It's true the little leaven of sin leavens the whole lump, and it's true the little leaven of Christianity leavens the whole lump. In fact, both Both ideas are exactly what I'm speaking about this morning. It doesn't take much to make the mixture unintelligible in terms of distinguishing characteristics. Now turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're looking at verse 1. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. If I could say those few verses in my own words Christ's coming is not even close until the man of sin has been revealed. Until the man of sin has been shown, Christ's coming is not close, and it's not time to be thinking particularly about getting ready for his coming. It's not near. But in Paul's day, the man of sin was already active. He talked about that in Acts 20. He talked about this great falling away, and he talked about how already, even among yourselves, there are people like this. The 1260 years are the period of time that it took for Satan's plan of operation in this world to be revealed. Here is what God allowed to happen. If I could draw a graph just to give you a picture. If this represents all of Europe, this represents France in particular. The papacy had influence outside of Europe. But where the papacy was seeking to develop a, an empire was in the Holy Roman Empire, that is the states of Europe. Popes were seeking for that for a long time. And we use the date 538 as the, as the way of speaking of when the papacy had what she was seeking. She had a civil, a civil state that had replaced eastern Rome. Eastern Rome was replaced by the papacy in 538. If you haven't gone over this, I can't do it right now. But there's another prophecy that you studied in Daniel class, and that was the 1290-day prophecy. Before the papacy had all of Eastern Europe, the papacy had one part of Eastern Europe. And what part was that? France got a 30-year head start on the rest. That is, before the papacy was a beast. What's a beast in prophecy? You know, it's a nation. Not a church, but a nation. Until the papacy was a nation, it wasn't a beast. Does that make any sense to what I just said? Where did the papacy first get its civil authority? That was in France. And France was not only 30 years ahead of the rest of civilization in this respect, it stayed ahead during the entirety of the Middle Ages. And when you study, as you did two days ago, about that terrible event called the French Revolution, you should understand the connection between the 1290 days and the revolution itself. What was France? France was the part of Europe that God gave into the hands of the papacy in terms of persecuting and oppression to do what she would. In France, she was allowed to kill whom she would, to banish whom she would, to make the laws that she would. And does that mean God didn't work in France? God worked mightily in France, but he allowed those that he converted there to be banished or be executed so that France was continually becoming a more and more corrupt society as the good that was in it was banished or executed. I mean, if every good parent in America was killed today, do you realize what would happen 40 years from now? Do you realize it would be quite a moral degeneracy quickly? That was France. And when you come to the French Revolution, who st- who suffered in the French Revolution? I mean, who were the oppressed entities? Now, let me ask you a quiz. Was it the Muslims that were suffering in the French Revolution? Was it the Jews? Who was it? The Huguenots? The Huguenots were suffering right up to the French Revolution. By the time you get just before the Revolution, almost all the Huguenots had left the country or been killed, and most of them came to the Carolinas that came here. So any of you who grew up in the Carolinas, you grew up with Huguenot influence all around you. Who suffered the French Revolution was the Roman Catholic Church. It was the priests and the bishops and the archbishops whose blood ended up coloring French soil and French water supply. What did the French Revolution show? It showed that Satan's plan of government ends in self-destruction. Said another way, the principles that governed France were Satan's principles. That's why you find in Revelation 2 that it says... It speaks about those who claim to be Jews but were not, were of the synagogue of Satan. What does that verse tell you? It tells you that Satan's professed church on earth is not a pagan church. If we had a church of Satan open in Amity that said on the door, church of Satan, that would not be Satan's church. I don't mean he wouldn't have some influence there, but according to the book book of Revelation, Satan's church is a professedly Christian church. And that professedly Christian church, that man of sin, received his revelation in the French Revolution. Listen, as soon as, the, as soon as the world could see the effect of 1,200 years of papal oppression in France, the period came to an end, and the papacy lost its civil authority. Immediately. Immediately. So let me conclude this part of the talk and then go on to another. Why 1,260 years? Because it could not have been done one moment sooner. It couldn't have been done faster. There was no way to limit that period of time. What God did to limit the persecution, He did limit the persecution, but even when He limited the persecution, He couldn't limit the period. Because when the persecution ended, the man of sin had not yet been revealed. The Huguenots were still moving out of the country. There was still a dangerous atmosphere in France. The persecution was largely brought to an end, not completely. But it took till that point, if you've wondered, have any of you noticed this in the Great Controversy and wondered, why is there a chapter on the French Revolution? I mean, you have, what do you have? You have the Waldensians, great. You have Wycliffe, wonderful. You have three chapters on Luther. Good, good, good. You have the Netherlands, wonderful. Switzerland, good. You have, you you know, follow what I'm saying? It's chapters about God's mighty work. And then, French Revolution? Why not cover Charlemagne or the Black Death or something else? It's the same reason why you find it in Revelation. We haven't hardly used our Bibles yet this morning, have we? Turn your Bibles to Revelation 11 like I had you do at the beginning. We never read anything. And we'll just observe some ideas here. Revelation chapter 11. And we're looking in verse 2 and 3. Revelation 11, verse 2. It says, But the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So that was the object of my lecture about a week ago. Now notice verse 3. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. This is like a side point, but if you've ever wondered why why this period is described three different ways, 1260, 42 months, and three and a half years. I'll just give you uh, one suggested reason. Those three different ways of describing it settle for us the length of a prophetic year and the length of a prophetic month. Did that make sense to you what I just said? That by comparing three and a half and 42 and 1260, we can know just mathematically that a prophetic month is 30 days and a prophetic year is 360. And isn't that helpful to save us all kinds of confusion? But in verse 2 and 3, you have this period mentioned twice, just before the description of the French Revolution. We studied here some time ago about Joseph's dreams. Do you remember how Joseph's dreams came in pairs? Or the dreams he interpreted came in pairs? They were given twice to show that they were certainly going to happen. They had different figures because there were different points being emphasized. Revelation 11 shows that the 1260-year period is intimately connected with the French Revolution, and that this period was certainly going to be this long, and that it would be related to the treading down of God's professed church and related to the oppression of the preaching of God's word. I think Mr. Clark has studied with you. Would you give me a verse number? Has he been going verse through verse? Is that how he's doing it? So, what verse did he end on? Somewhere around verse 12? Verse 12. Let's look at verse 13. And the same hour. So I hope he did a good job in verse 12, because it's speaking about the same hour. That is, the same hour when those when the word of God was restored to its rightful place in France. The only rightful place it had in France was that it had a right to be preached and spoken of and to exist. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrightened and gave glory to the God of heaven. The great city is elsewhere in Revelation, Babylon. The picture of Babylon elsewhere is a woman riding on a beast that has ten horns. Those ten horns represent the ten various powers of Europe. And now we find an earthquake, and how much of the city falls? Well, that's easy to interpret now, isn't it? Which tenth fell? Okay, France fell. One-tenth of the city fell. And of men were slain, 7,000. Seven is used to represent completeness. And there's nothing better you could say about the French Revolution than that there was just a wholesale slaughter of the most significant kind described in gory detail in the book Great Controversy. Verse 14. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe comes quickly. Now this harks back a long ways. I mean, we haven't heard about woes since we were in chapter 8. And now we're in chapter 11. But do you remember what you read in the last verse of chapter 8? It had just spoken of those four judgments of God on the Roman Catholic system, those four judgments, and then it said, woe unto the earth by reason of the three woes which are yet to come. And so in chapter 9, you studied two of those woes, but you never finished the second one. That is, the sixth trumpet is not precisely Parallel to the second woe. How many of you are lost in in that sentence? It just sounded like a sentence that would lose people. So let me draw up here what we're talking about. So here we have the... 45. I get to go to 25, right? Here we have the seven trumpets. The first four trumpets... Are God's judgment on Rome in its pre papal state? That is, Rome was already becoming papal in religion, but it wasn't papal in government. You could say that in the first four trumpets, you have the woman and you have the beast. In the next three trumpets, you have the woman on top of the beast. Excuse my artistic inability. All right. But do you understand the basic idea I'm communicating? So in the first four trumpets, God is judging Rome, where the Catholic Church is operating, In the next three trumpets, he's judging Rome, which has become the Catholic system. And in the end of Revelation 8, we were told that these three trumpets are called woes. That is, compared to these, they're much worse. And now we find out that while the fifth woe, which lasted until the fall of Constantinople... The fifth woe represented the fall of Eastern Rome. That's right. When Constantinople fell, the fifth woe was over. What took over Eastern Rome? What What overcame Eastern Rome? What? The Muslims. The Muslims overcame Eastern Rome and obliterated it, and that was... Hopefully you learned that in Revelation 9. In Revelation 6, as this woe begins, the Muslims are still active, but they're very active here against the papacy. And the Muslims finish their activity against the papacy in Revelation chapter 9. But are we done with the second woe? This is the point that the, the judgments on the papacy were not limited to the work of Islam. The second judgment on the papacy was the work of atheistic self destruction. How did God judge the papacy? First with Islam and then with itself. The papacy was judged with itself, the papacy was punished by allowing its principles to develop until they destroyed itself. Can you punish children that way? A lot of parents do it and won't be excused for it. I mean, they let the children go without being punished. And do the children end up getting punished? They end up destroying themselves. There's no excuse for that. Jesus did not let France go. He worked constantly in France, but he allowed Satan to have his way in France, and he gathered gathered his own. We talked about that. We haven't come yet to the third woe. But just by the nature of how the Bible works, if the first woe is bad, and the second woe is very bad, is the third woe going to be just Minorly problematic. In Revelation, things are climbing to a climax. They aren't climbing and then descending. And this is all a way of telling you to pay attention to your life because you happen to live in the third woe. Looking at the next verse. The second woe is passed, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. Can you see in verse 14 that when one woe ends, it might not be the next hour that the next woe begins? That there might be a period of time in between the woes. And in fact, these woes don't happen in a day. You remember in Revelation 10 that the angel said, in the days of the seventh angel, when he shall begin the sound, So that implies there's a period of time when the angel is sounding, a period of time when the woe is happening. Verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now please notice a contrast between verse 15 and verse 18. In verse 15, in heaven they're saying, the kingdoms belong to Jesus. But in verse 18, it says, and the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. I'm going to summarize this idea by saying that if this is heaven and this is earth, in heaven you hear voices that say, the kingdoms belong to Jesus. But on earth, you have a picture of the kingdoms in anarchy. Or a mass, or whatever you want to call it. There is a dichotomy here. And this dichotomy is going on now. In heaven, angels are saying that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of Jesus. How is it that they are becoming? Weren't they the kingdoms of Jesus always and from the very beginning? It's through means of the judgment. if I could draw the picture... Let's say this represents all people who have ever lived on the world. Only a small portion of these have ever really professed to have given their life to Jesus. What happens to these people in the judgment? Ones who have never submitted to the Spirit's work in their life? Are they being judged today in the 1844 judgment? The answer is no. This class are condemned so simply that it does not require an investigative judgment to condemn them. That is that all beings all over can see, and even Satan admits it, that these people ought to be condemned. Is Satan trying to advocate the justification of any of his servants? So if Satan condemns them and heaven condemns them, And everyone in the universe sees that they're condemned, and if you ask them themselves, they expect about the same thing, a good chunk of them. These don't really need any investigation of their cases to be condemned. This class does. And as this class is being judged, the ones who are judged faithful, their sins are blotted out, and they are joined to the kingdom of heaven. That's what the judgment is about the judgment is an admission process into the kingdom of glory. And as names are retained in the book of life and their sins are blotted out, that name is now part of God's kingdom of glory. The kingdoms of this world that are going to exist longer than a short time are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But what about... The class who say, We will not have this man to reign over us. Do you remember that from the parable? So what does the what does the king do with the class that say, We will not have this man to reign over us? He sends his armies and burns up their city. I'm just quoting from the parable. He burns up their city. But we've been talking about a city one-tenth of it fell in the French Revolution, the other nine-tenths are going to fall in the near future, and the kingdoms of this world will have been made up in the judgment, and we'll study more about that in the future. Let's kneel for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you for how you are bringing this world to as speedy a close as it can be brought. And I ask for each of us here that you would teach us, that you would prepare us to be part of those kingdoms that do become your own. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.